He says, I remember redwood trees, bumper cars, and wolverines. There is literally only one verified living wolverine in the wild in California and hasn't been seen in person in like 12 fucking years. There's no way he saw a wolverine. And welcome to another episode of 1001 Album Complaints, the podcast where musicians and friends dig deep into the records that have defined music history, but specifically as cited in the book 1001 Albums You Must Hear Before You Die. We're going to do a deep dive into some of the history behind the record and the band, the musical context of the songs and the band and where the band is at in their career. We're going to play clips from a handful of the songs. So if you're not super familiar, don't worry. We're going to play the stuff we're talking about. And in the end, what we're going to do is we're going to vote on whether or not you actually need to hear this record before you die. So you officially know if it was in fact worth your time. Want to thank you so much for listening. My name is Rob. I've been playing, writing and recording music for over 25 years and was that kind of kid who just poured over the liner notes, always wishing for more details. Well, here we are in this podcast to give you some of those details. This week, very, very, very excited. We've been listening to a band slash record that Rolling Stone, in their original review, this is what Rolling Stone said in their original review, it may be dangerously close to becoming a conventional rock and roll band, but Green, the record in question, proves it's a damn good one. I like that. We're talking, of course. Okay. We're ta- yeah. We're talking, of course, about REM. And I want to say right off the bat, I think that quote kind of sums up a lot of what I want to discuss today. Does REM's green sound like by the numbers rock and roll because it's bland or because it's the group that, in fact, launched a thousand pretenders thereafter? It's got a chicken and egg thing. To get us situated into the conversation, let's first play a little music. Let's listen to the first single they released from this album from REM's Green. The single, the song is called Orange Crush. Okay, very excited to get into talking about REM today and specifically about Green. And we've got a special guest from a like-minded music podcast called <laughs> Verse Chorus Verse. Very excited to introduce that special guest in a moment. But first, let's go around the room and hear your tweet-length reviews of REM's Green. Tom. All right. Thank you, everybody. This is Tom. In an interview with Michael Stipe where he was looking back on REM and their career and their popularity, he made two statements. Statement number one, I don't think we spearheaded anything. And statement number two, 
we never sucked. <laughs> I agree with one of those two statements. <laughs> Stay tuned to find out which one. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, man, that's a good one. Okay, let's kick it over to Alan. So this album was critically acclaimed, commercially successful, influential, made without a bunch of infighting and drug use. What more could you possibly want? Aside from a consistently good album. Oh. Ah. <laughs> All right. I see the future. I see. I'm reading the tea leaves right now. I said I consistently. Think. So that uh, guys, it's been real. Sure we... I'm out. Yeah. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> now to kick it to our very special guest complainer, DL from the podcast Verse Chorus Verse. Give us your tweet length review, please. I like that uh, guest complainer. So I kind of I'm realizing as I'm reading this, this is kind of a little bit more of a headline than a tweet. So I apologize for that. But mine is green or orange. One of the easiest bands to make fun of's easiest album to make fun of is a delightful flash of late '80s dry brilliance. Ooh, okay, that's how Twitter should be used, <laughs> not the way that it's used nowadays. <laughs> we should just call them tweet length complaints yeah. <laughs> instead of tweet length reviews. That might be more accurate. Yeah. Okay, and I am last up this week. This is Rob. My tweet length review of REM's Green is. Do you like your indie rock extra whiny with a dash of obtuse environmental politics? Then REM have the record for you. <laughs> Before we start talking REM proper, I would love to throw the mic over to DL, our special guest from the Verse Chorus Verse Music Podcast. DL, tell us a little bit about the podcast, why people should go listen to it. Yeah, uh, thanks you guys for having me. Enjoy your podcast, by the way. I've listened to a couple now, some some hot takes, but I like it. We're hot take merchants for sure. <laughs> yeah, hot takes from ugly dudes. That's what we got going on here. So this started a few years ago with uh, my friend Svend and I, who we grew up, we did a lot of jazz stuff together in high school and started a band, gigged a lot in our 20s, and then, you know, life happens. But we wanted to stay musically, I don't not knowledgeable, but sensical, whatever you want to call it. Had a couple other friends recruited. Uh, we have a gentleman goes by Evil and a girl that goes by the name Rachel. And it's just us four talking about albums, talking about years in music, talking about artists. We have the occasional interview. Uh, it's just a weekly hour-long podcast, very similar to this one here. Excellent. I will sign on to highly recommend that podcast as well. It is delightful, and I personally learn a lot of the episodes I've listened to. And I am one of those people who it's not easy for me to learn because I'm stupid. And so if even I can learn from it, I would say the average person is going to get a lot from it. That's really nice of you. Thank you. We appreciate yeah, yeah. that a lot. Yeah, I agree. I noticed that about Verse Chorus Verse podcast as well. It's very well researched and, and very in-depth in a way that, frankly, we're not always able to go on a week-by-week -week basis. So you guys really do your homework and I think that means you don't always necessarily release weekly, but that's probably to the betterment of having a lot more knowledge packed in there, which is really We cool. do release weekly. We have never missed a week, Shit. but... Okay, you're just better than us. Then, yeah. I'm just fucking weird, that's all. Yeah, why are you wasting your time here? <laughs> cool. Well, I also want to mention that Phil and I, normally of 1001 Album Complaints, also went over and did a podcast uh, on Verse Chorus Verse with DL talking about Neutral Milk Hotel. I believe that is up right now or will be up very shortly as you're listening to this. So that's a great opportunity for you to go check out the podcast and see 
the different vibe of that show and check out the the rest of their back catalog. So we talk about another very, very awesome album with you on that one. You know, I didn't realize at the time that we were selecting that one that these two records had a connection, which is very Athens, much, yeah. Georgia. Yeah. Didn't didn't occur to me actually until a couple days ago as I was doing the research here. So, but let's stay focused on REM and let's use this as an opportunity to dive in. So I want to point out that REM has a handful of records on the 1001 list. And so we're going to go a little light on background here and instead focus primarily on the creation of this record directly. They got four records on the uh, on the list. It's wow. pretty impressive. Sounds like some reviewer out there might be a little biased towards REM. They do <laughs> seem to be a band that that has... Very devoted fans, let's say. I don't think anyone on this call, save maybe DL, would call themselves one of those devoted fans. So this will be an interesting conversation. Yeah, I like them. Great. (laughs) I I would say I like them just fine as well, but I'm not a devotee. So let's talk a little bit about their background, though. They did come out of the aforementioned Athens, Georgia scene. It's kind of a college town, but it's also known for being kind of a musical incubator. They were somewhat contemporaries or maybe slightly next generation to B-52s. Mm-hmm. And the other band we just mentioned, Neutral Milk Hotel and the kind of Elephant Six Collective in later in the 90s came out of Athens, Georgia as well. My understanding is that it's, you know, because it's a college town, because it's a kind of a little off the beaten path, there's an unpretentiousness to creating art in a town like that. And it's just been known for music for a long time to the point where people had moved to that town to start a band. I think by the time the nineties rolled around. Yeah. They had that blue bubble thing going on, like blue bubble in a red state, you know? So all the weirdos are going to go to the one place where the weirdos are not getting, you know, shit thrown at them when they walk down the street, um, you know, in mid 1980s, Georgia. And I can see why that would lead to a very fecund uh, environment for musical creation. You just get all the weirdos there who all of a sudden are like, I found my place. I can do whatever I want. What I guess San Francisco had going on in the 60s, which it certainly does not have going on now. <laughs> but uh, yeah. Or maybe even up until the 80s. But yeah, and then Portland maybe took yeah. some of that yeah. Yeah. over. And, you know, there are, there are always these pockets. Austin, I think, although that's now getting kind of blown out. But yeah, it's, it's a good point, the blue the blue bubble phenomenon and just the incubator phenomenon of, of weirdness, mm-hmm. where, where anything goes, and that's going to automatically lead to probably some, some cool breakthrough creativity, I, one would assume, right? Yeah. Yeah. We, so I actually, I grew up in Boise, Idaho, and there was a very similar vibe with Built to Spill. I don't know if you guys are familiar with Built to Spill, mm-hmm. but sure. very, yeah. like you said, blue bubble, and because of that, Doug Marsh was just able to create brilliance basically because there is this genuine outcast like Michael Stipe was kind of the symbol in the 80s and 90s for the outcast for the people being bullied for the he it reminds me of actually he did the Hall of Fame induction for Nirvana and it, he mm-hmm. talked about yeah. how this is music for the outcasts this is music for the bullied and he was a very very good representative of that I feel Oh yeah, you're gay in Georgia in the seventies. That's I like. <laughs> or the gay 2000s. in Georgia in 2023. Yeah, yeah. It's gotta suck. But yeah. <laughs> yes, and in addition to that, let's just say that this band is really early. What you would call indie rock. It's one of the first bands that really broke through college radio, specifically. In other words, without having a proper hit, they kind of became popular and could draw crowds around the United States and even sell quite a few records just based on college 
radio airplay. And I think they set up somewhat of a template or certainly, you know, were part of an early part of a revolution in independent rock music, which we're all pretty damn familiar with. Yeah, I was actually surprised when I went back and looked at there. I knew they had they're one of these bands that had like a decent catalog before they became big. But I was surprised that they started in 83. That seemed like a lot earlier than in my mind. They yeah. had started and maybe it was just kind of growing up on MTV and, and thinking that their losing my religion was on the earlier side of things. No, they were definitely like coming out of that that new wave time period, which surprised me like chronologically a little bit. Right. I think they were seen as an antidote to some of that wave of popular music. They were kind of an Americana, almost folky band, and they were really compelling live act, and they really just built an audience sort of little by little. It's worth mentioning, too, though, but, you know, built an audience amongst amongst hip music listening, educated college kids for the most part. But one fun fact about them, we're not talking about their debut album, Murmur, but I read this week that Murmur was named Record of the Year by Rolling Stone over top of Michael Jackson's Thriller. Whoa. I mean, that's wrong. I'm sorry. And that's in 83? That's just wrong. Yes. I love that album, by the way. Murmur is a fantastic album. And I do think at that time, they were kind of the... It's funny because they were the... Not the opposite, but at that time, you also had this huge punk revolution of the Black Flags and bands like this, but they were equally respected. Like, R.E.M. was kind of con- somehow considered punk, basically. Well, I feel like it's they have a very good sense of self. They know who they are. They know what kind of music they're making. And that's what you can say about punk, because punk was sort of, hey, we are what we are. We're doing what we're doing. And if you like it, great. If you don't, fuck you. I don't care. And R.E.M. wasn't in your face about it, but I feel like they had a little bit of the like, hey, we're going to make our music. And if you don't like it, fuck you. I don't really care. I know that they have credited their rise to basically like the right place, right time in terms of the rise of college radio, like college radio getting recognized on a national level as an antidote to the kind of homogenized pop that was being put out there, which I'm not even talking shit on the pop. There was some fantastic pop music that was coming out in the early eighties. But if you didn't like that, for some reason, college radio had caught on and they just happened to be peaking at the time where college radio was getting more exposure than the little tiny bubbles of these little college towns. And, you know, just listening to a lot of interviews with them, they seem really humble and really aware of the, the word luck has come up so many times in interviews with them where they're like, we got really lucky. I don't know what to tell you. We've been making music for ourselves, and we got really lucky that people happen to like it. And good for us. We're happy. I think that's where the whole, like, I didn't spearhead anything comment came from with Michael Stipe. He's like, I just made music for myself, and I got lucky. Yeah, there's definitely, like, an unpretentious vibe, I think, to at least to the way the music comes across anyway. I don't know much about them, you know, personally, offstage, in air quotes. I could see where they could be seen as extremely pretentious. Yeah. We're going to get into that. But speaking of luck... Let's talk about the fact that this band in Athens, Georgia, was originally assembled for a birthday party in an abandoned church where Michael Stipe and Peter Buck lived. And to that party came 700 people for their first gig. And amongst that group were like three booking agents who immediately started booking them around town for money. Okay, so fuck that. They did get lucky. That's super lucky, yeah. (laughs) God damn. Okay, we're we're, going to get into it, and we're going to get into it with general impressions and when we talk about some of the lyrics. But what I want to get across is Green is their sixth full-length release, and like we said, there are three other 
of their albums on the list of 1001 albums you must hear before you die. They were at a point in their career leading up to Green where savvy music listening, music aficionados knew who they were. Hipsters knew who they were. And they were staging successful tours. And I believe their previous record document, which was kind of considered a breakthrough, was verging on selling a million records. But they were unhappy with their, you know, they wanted more. They wanted more international reach in particular. They were signed with a small label called IRS. And they shopped around and they signed a deal with Warner Brothers, a huge contract. And Warner Brothers offered them international distribution, bigger scale, more money, of course, and perhaps most importantly, total creative freedom. Extremely ironic because they had to leave their small label to get complete artistic freedom. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. <laughs> Indeed. So let's talk. That was That's the situation going in to the sessions for Green, and that's the context of the band. They've already released five albums. They've built a following, but now it's their major label debut. I do want to bring up one point, and this is something that Mike Mills talked about in an interview, which I thought was actually a very uh, poignant comment about the state of the record industry in general. He's, he was talking about the curse of the popular first album. And he's like, you know, REM basically first album sold like 100,000 copies. Second album sold like 300,000 copies. Third album sold like 400,000 copies. He's like, we just had this sort of steady rise it wasn't that we were he compared them to the go-go's so the go-go's sold seven million albums on their first record and then their next album sold a million records and people were like oh the go-go's can't sell records they suck now he's like they just sold a million records what are you talking about like but it's the curse of the first album he's like we've never actually had that we've just sort of consistently taken the next yeah. logical step and the next logical step and the next logical step as opposed to blow up and then you have to continue to sell Michael Jackson level numbers for the rest of your career or you suck. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that can inform a lot of the decisions that you're going to make and probably put you in a mindset where you are much more comfortable saying, well, my artistic choices have gotten me to this point and I'm going to continue to believe in myself as opposed to fall into the machine, you know? But you might have those numbers in front of you, but it really is like, I think Document was their, the album before this was their first one that went platinum. Mm-hmm. And then this one went, I think, double platinum. Then their next one went triple or quadruple. And then Automatic for the People, basically everybody fucking bought. I do have those numbers handy. And I was getting ready to read them. <laughs> no, 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 no problem. No problem. <laughs> so let's do our favorite segment, Buy the Numbers. REM's Green, Buy the Numbers. How many did, did Green sell? It's charted to have sold 4 million copies. Nothing to sneeze at. That's four times platinum. But DL's right. They were only on their way up. The next record sold even more and the next record even more. I don't have those figures handy, but they continued to get more and more popular and came onto my radar only about two, two albums later, uh, frankly, with Automatic for the People, which is the one I was most familiar with. We already mentioned this is their sixth full album release. Let's just talk about the release date. This was released November 7th, Election Day, 1988. Definitely purposeful. They have some kind of political message, although they don't seem like they're overtly political. But okay. (laughs) It reached number 12 in the U.S., 27 in the U.K. I got a couple more figures I want to throw at you guys. Number of completely useless key changes in the biggest hit on this album, Stand. (laughs) There's at least two. (laughs) Two is the correct answer. Is Stand the biggest hit on this album? Yeah. By far. God damn, 89 was a rough year. Well, it is funny. I feel like we've been 
living for the last few episodes in in this era where you know we had pixies when we did surfer rosa we did the black crows which was 91 i think but we also did appetite so it is interesting to see how many it almost like there was like a a fight for mind share from these different these like competing forces where it's like they're all on the cusp of of like the grunt coalescing around the grunge scene i don't know man you want to you want to you want to the Billboard number ones from 1989? Well, with the pop charts, yeah, dude, that's... there were three Millie Vanilli number ones in 1989. <laughs> well, exactly, it was two it was new a, it kids was a... on the block number ones. No, I think the message though that Alan's trying to get at is that it was we're getting close to the the peak of the record buying public and the fracturing of the musical taste in terms of the people who are buying those records. And MTV is certainly helping with that. They're breaking new artists every week. And it's this new mm-hmm. format where with, where alternative, which was a new word at the time to describe music or relatively new, you know, you, you could still have a place and not be on those billboard charts and sure. still sell a million records. But there was this concept, uh, you know, I think about a lot. It's like you get to the point where they're shuffling the deck. And every about 10 years or so, you shuffle the deck and the music changes and everybody's trying to find the next new thing. And this is like right at the beginning of the shuffling of the deck and then grunge and hip hop came out on top. And basically those were the next two dominant forces forever. It was like hair metal and like bubblegum girl pop stuff, which in looking at this list, I just have to say, I, you know, I was looking at some of the the number one songs from uh, 1989. We had Straight Up by Paula Abdul, Eternal Flame by The Bangles, Miss You Much by Janet Jackson, Like a Prayer by Madonna. And I was like, oh, man, these are all killer songs. And I was like, you know what? I think actually what happened was I was just figuring out what it was to be horny at the time. (laughs) And MTV's music videos were, like, exposing me to these beautiful women dancing around in their videos. And I was like, I have such great memories of these songs. Yeah. Paula Abdul is about to make out with an animated cat. (laughs) That's opposites attract. All right. So I think that the takeaway I'm hearing is that Millie Vanilli is better than Guns N' Roses, Pixies, and R.E.M. Well, yeah. Is that what we're walking away with? <laughs> yeah. Listen, girl, you know it's true. <laughs> story story checks out. Okay. So let's just let's make sure we understand who the members of this band are. I actually think they're a big enough band. They've been around long enough, which which is impressive in its own right. Or they were around long enough. Same four guys that these names are probably familiar to a lot of people, but just in case they're not, we have Michael Stipe, who's the lead singer. We have Mike Mills, who typically plays bass, but I think sometimes plays keyboard, maybe even accordion. We have Peter Buck, who's the guitar player, but they also do switch instruments on this one, but he's primarily the guitar player, and we have Bill Berry, the drummer. Give Mike Mills his credit as the second vocalist in this band, because I do think that he gets a lot of time to shine as the second vocalist, and I think that's... Unique to the band. I love that. I've, uh, I'm glad that you said that, though, because there is, I think it's, you're hard pressed to find a more unique voice in that time than Stipe. And to be able to harmonize with him, that's, that is not an easy task. Yeah, I have to agree. I wrote down, even though I am going to complain about the whininess <laughs> of both the vo- vocal quality and the lyrical content of Michael Stipe, he does have an iconic. And what I would consider a great voice. It's, it's it's instantly recognizable. And I've liked it on many, many songs. And I like many of the songs he's written. You know what's funny is you know what's, you know what's really badass is his talking voice. He has like the smoothest talking voice ever. 
I was shocked at how low yeah. his voice was <laughs> yeah. on this album. He goes low. I I always had him in that like, oh no, I said too much in my head. But he's so low on so many of these songs, and it sounds great. It sounds really good. He's a very interesting front man. Like I know we say we don't talk about appearances, but we we kind of do. And and I, I say that to say it does not exude like frontman superstar kind of vibes. But he has definitely carved out a lane for himself as like one of the most iconic like rock frontmen ever. And you know I'll give him his props for that. All right, you you cracked the egg on talking about appearances. I was wondering <laughs> if I was even going to bring this up. I was looking through my notes, and I'd gotten kind of drunk over the weekend, <laughs> and I made some notes about this album, and I was Shocker. looking at pictures, and I, I have a note that I was like, I had to decipher it later, but I said, Bill Berry looks like every day is Ash Wednesday, but his religion is all about birds. Like, <laughs> they drew like the kid's bird, like impression of the, the kid flying. <laughs> he really rocks it though. He's he's confident with that. He is confident. But to give, okay, but back to Michael Stipe for a second. One more thing we should mention is that because, I think early on, because he was the only one that had been maybe in art school for some amount of time, he was automatically in charge of all their visual design. Now, I don't think he actually did most of the visual design, but he has sort of supervised everything from the album covers to, you know, picking directors for the videos that they would make to eventually, and I, in fact, I think on this tour for the first time, they created video content to play behind them during the show. And so he has a strong, he's, he's strongly responsible for the band's visual identity as well, I think we can say. You know, this very interesting fact about them is that he apparently raged against lip syncing in music videos. He thought it was incredibly stupid and trite and hated it. And so all of their music videos do not have him ever singing along to the lyrics. He refused to lip sync along to the videos. <laughs> and then apparently he saw the Sinead O'Connor video for Nothing Compares to You, said it moved him to tears. And then that. he realized that she was lip syncing too. And then... Losing My Religion was the first video that he actually lip-synced in, and boom, there uh, we go. And then shaved his head. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's that's what makes the difference, is being able to see someone's lips move. Couldn't you also counteract that by just singing while they're filming you? It's not that hard, right? I thought that's what everybody did. Yeah, words can come out of your mouth. Like, it's not going <laughs> to show up on the, on the tape. <laughs> Okay, let's talk. Let's segue into just talking general impressions of the album. We're, we're kind of already there, but what did y'all think? What was your week like, very generally speaking? And what maybe what were you expecting going in versus what did you get? I mentioned earlier that I, I was very interested to listen to this just because we've been kind of randomly living in this like late 80s world for, I, I think, a few months now. And everybody liked Surfer Rosa, right? I didn't like it, but I said, you got to listen to it. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, we, we all voted it in. We had, I think we had some issues with it, like just because that's what we do. You know? <laughs> so. <laughs> but I did think it, it was... It was a little bit of a breath of fresh air. It was very different, I think, than all the aforementioned group set from this era. I do think in general, I found this album, and I mentioned at the outset, the the consistency, the piece. I think the the hits are good and catchy. I do think there's some dead weight on this album, though. And I know we'll get into some of the, the tracks later on, but I, I just felt like you had like sort of two sides of the coin for me. You had... One side, which was a lot of the songs that have just been force fed to us on the radio over time. And then the other side just being I, some of them. I don't even know if I'd 
call songs exactly (laughs) (laughs) their tone their tone poems down verging on spoken word or something but so yeah that was my experience where um sort of like strikes and gutters dl what about you i mean okay so this is a little unfair but i think we kind of did this on purpose this was probably one of my first favorite albums ever this came out universally most of the I had very specific people I looked up to musically that, you know, some of them liked punk. Some of them liked, you know, my dad was a big hair metal into grunge guy and all that sort of thing. All of them loved this album when it came out. So for me, this was a a grew up with album. Uh, I will say that I probably had not listened to this album for probably seven, eight years. Like, I don't even think I, I put the vinyl on in forever and it's still an unfair thing because I just, I think this album is incredible and I do see, you know, that a lot of the REM fans before this, which you might touch on this later, really weren't a huge fan of this album because this was their sellout album. I'm doing quotations like people will be <laughs> able to see me, but I don't think so. I think that this is fantastic. I think there's maybe one or two songs that I don't love on it, but I also think that there's at least one song that's to me might be one of the best rock songs ever written. So yeah. (laughs) Okay. Well that nostalgia aside, and I totally understand. I don't think any of the rest of us have nostalgia for this album specifically. So, you know, we'll take that into consideration with your point of view. But what I'm also curious about, and one of the things we sometimes struggle with on the show, frankly, is that we cover bands that we're not super fans of, that we don't have tons and tons and tons of context. And especially a band like this that has so many records. I'm an REM fan who I think the only album I ever owned was Automatic for the People. So I'm just curious for you to weave some of those kinds of opinions in DL as well or anything else you think of about where this fits in the timeline of REM. It occurs to me, knowing I know their material that comes in the future better than what comes before this. I love listening to all of it a little bit, but it does strike me that this points in the directions they're going. But I would kind of agree with Alan that it's a little bit of a mixed bag on a song level. I see them trying some new things, some different things, which I appreciate and respect. And I think some of them are successful. And But other ones, they... feel like a complete whiff to me and yet i can see how they perfected that side of the craft later in their career yeah no i i can definitely see that and understand it uh i really think that this album i do agree that this was kind of an entryway this was from their i mean if you ask anybody the if you ask an average music lover name me like the college radio band i honestly feel like 80 percent of them are gonna say rem And this was, I think you're right, that this was kind of their doorway into popularity. And you guys were talking earlier about how this was kind of pre-grunge or pre-early 90s, whatever. I think a lot of that was every once in a while society gets it right and good music is popular. And that's kind of what happened in the early 90s (laughs) is suddenly pop music was holy shit, it's like the billboards are fucking good. And I think this was a, this had a huge hand in that. I do think in their discography, this isn't as polished 
as an automatic for the people or a, or document. And I do agree that there are some songs, I won't name them right now, but there are some songs that I think are could be a little more of a finished idea later on. But I personally, yeah. I like that. I like the the attempt and the rawness and it's, I don't want to say gritty because it's not a very gritty album, but there's just something that is fresh in REM. Like REM is still figuring themselves out somehow when they're five albums, six albums in or whatever. Yeah. I definitely respect the experimentation for sure. And again, like I, I thought it was to mixed results, but I think to take on your first major record deal, which I don't remember the exact number, but it was apparently like a lot at the time for a a record deal of that sort. But to then say, we're going to take this opportunity to completely experiment. And then on top of that, to, quote unquote sell out by being double or quadruple platinum like i'll take that any day yeah <laughs> apparently it was a six to between six and twelve million dollars was the deal that they got unreleased but is between six and twelve million dollars that they got for this for their contract i mean that's some serious like trust yeah you had to have built up some some serious credibility at that time to to get that kind of deal i would sell out for a tenth of that money hell yeah easily easily i'd sell out for a freaking Beer I'll save my head for yeah. 10 bucks. <laughs> exactly. Give me some free gear. I'm like, yeah. all right. On, on top of that, I heard that Warner Brothers, I've, I'm pretty sure I heard Peter Buck say that Warner Brothers waited 18 months for their answer to the contract. <laughs> wow. Well, they had, they were being suited pretty heavily, I think. And I honestly yeah. think the only reason Warner Brothers won is because they were giving them complete artistic freedom. Right. They're like, sure, fuck it. Mandolin's fine. Yeah. Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> which means they have to put out whatever the band said. We've talked about this on a few other podcasts. Willie Nelson got it in a contract in the mid seventies. Beck had it, which is why he was able to put out Odelay or they had to put out Odelay. Yeah. It's generally a great decision if artists can get it. And it means the record company has to put it out no matter how they feel about it. They don't have to market it or really get behind it in any real way, but they do have to, I have to plug out. your podcast too, because I did, I'm a huge bet guy and I did listen to Odalay. That was a fantastic episode. You guys did great. Awesome. Thanks man. Yeah. It's a, it's a fun record and that it held up. I, I wanted to mention, you know, before we get into maybe ripping on some of these individual songs and I have some details on how this was recorded as well, that it was occurring to me while I was listening to it, just speaking of where this leads. Cause we talk a lot about, to me, the list of a thousand and one albums you must hear before you die, if it belongs on that list, it's not just that it's good to listen to or even that it holds up. It has to point in a musical direction. And so it occurred to me, it probably occurred to y'all this week, that if you like bands like The Shins or Death Cab or The Decemberists or insert other folk-tinged indie rock, then you definitely have R.E.M. to thank for pointing things in that direction. And then this is just a fun little anecdote. I was I wrote down some of those names that I just mentioned. And then I happened to listen to super fan Adam Scott, who used to have a podcast about REM, talk about a 2018 the benefit actor? gig. Yeah, the actor, yeah. <laughs> no shit. <laughs> yeah, he's a, he's an REM super fan and he had a podcast with, right. with Scott Ackerman and like him even more now. Okay. But anyway, he he referenced the 2018 kind of benefit gig that happened in Portland, a small show that he went to which was a reunion of everybody in the REM band. They had, they had since broken up, except Michael Stipe wasn't there. And lo and behold, guess who stepped up to sing a couple REM <laughs> songs, but James Mercer, the lead singer of The Shins, and Colin Malloy, the lead singer of The December. Oh, wow. 
So I, f- I felt vindicated. You know what I saw as the direct line was Counting Crows. I got they came a huge up for me Counting Crows mentally yeah. as well. The violin and the kind of whiny, rambly lyrics. The yeah, the the tremolo vocal yeah. approach, right? <laughs> they and even I'm have mandolin in some of those songs too. Yeah, I was a big Counting Crows fan. Still, I'm a big Counting Crows fan. That the yeah, first two albums, first, were first great. record's great. Second yeah. record's pretty good too. The, here's the thing that's crazy about REM, though. That I again, I'll I'll, I'll give them their due for this. All those bands you mentioned, yeah, I, I I think there's a clear line, but they were like the Pixies, one of Kurt Cobain's biggest influences, and yeah. he was a he was obsessed with. I think he put this album as like one of his top, top 50 like of fifty all time. albums. And there are parts of this album that I can actually, if I close my eyes, I can I can hear going really well for like the unplugged set that that nirvana did you know i wouldn't have drawn that line but i think it has to be said you know that that was a big influence they are a much quieter version of where alternative rock went later but it's not night and day it is there's very much a through line of like let's just throw a lot more distortion on that and be a little bit more overtly angry about things and then you got a bunch of the songs from the 90s that i grew up loving yeah i I see a connection to the kind of earnest sincerity of the songwriting and the fragile vocal approach of a guy like kurt cobain definitely sure although i do want to mention that it feels like Kurt Cobain said this was a major influence comes up on every other podcast. That's like <laughs> that's like people claiming they were at Woodstock or something. I just feel like Kurt Cobain had so many interviews where they asked him what his influences were and he just rattled off any number of bands. There's a lot of a lot of people in that category. Oh, Millie Vanilli. They they definitely had an impact on my career. <laughs> so let's talk briefly about songwriting and recording. They started out doing demos in a recording studio in their hometown of Athens, Georgia then hopped over to begin the proper recording in Ardent Studios over in Memphis, Tennessee, which you'll recall is the place where Big Star cut their record and where Led Zeppelin Three was mixed. We kind of talked about the history of that studio on the Big Star episode. Rob, real quick, I just want to interject here that there is a very famous handwritten list of Kurt Cobain's top 50 albums that's going around, and R.E.M.'s Green is number 25 on that list, by the way. <laughs> So that's straight from the source. Is it just like scrawled on a napkin? Or? It's like <laughs> scrawled on like a piece of scratch paper and pen. The handwriting's terrible and shit. Yeah, but that's 25 I mean, uh, Okay, list. I'm just, 50's <laughs> kind of too many already. I'm just saying. <laughs> <laughs> Narrow it down, Kurt. There's also, there's also a Swans album on there, so you know. <laughs> you the guy wasn't all right. Oh, no. <laughs> okay, so this one was recorded in both Memphis at Arden, which we've previously talked about, and up in Woodstock, New York. Speaking of Woodstock at a place called Bearsville Studios. They recorded it over the course of about four months, May to September 88, and then it came out in November. And as was previously alluded to, the guiding principle of these sessions after they signed this huge new record deal was to switch things up. Let's incorporate new instruments. Let's incorporate new members playing those instruments. So they switched instruments. Peter Buck plays drums on one of the tracks. Bill Berry, the normal drummer, plays bass on at least one of the tracks. And the goal was to eschew the traditional REM song style, which I don't really know how successful they were at that based on my glancing appreciation of their back catalog. 
But that was Michael Stipe's specific suggestion. Let's not write REM songs. Well, what does it say about Mike Mills and his bass playing ability that I don't know which songs he didn't play bass on? I don't know which of the ones. I saw in their Wikipedia article, they describe Bill Berry's drumming style as economical. And I was like, why are you calling him out? Everybody in this band is an economical <laughs> player. There's not like a lot that's of virtuosity a, going on. I think it, it... Yeah, that's definitely a low-key insult. It reminds yeah. me a little bit of... I mean, uh, I'm, I'm much more of a... And I, I get it. I am much more of a play what makes the song work kind of guy. And I think REM is very much like that. It does what you were just talking about with the making this album. It reminds me a little bit of like what Radiohead did with Kid A. They were so paranoid about making the same thing that they'd been making that they were just throwing whatever they could, like switching instruments or whatever they had to do to make sure that they weren't going to do the same thing over. Yeah, they talked about this as being, yeah, I'm sure that was the reason, and I do appreciate the premise behind that process. But let's talk about one more thing that I think has helped with that, but also has helped keep, or helped did keep R.E.M. together as the same four guys for so long. They were a band for almost 20 years, and then Bill Berry had a had a brain aneurysm burst on stage, and partially as a result of that, ended up quitting the band in the in the late 90s, I believe, amicably. But in any case, all the songs in this band are credited to all four members, and they made that decision very early on. And that says something, I think, both about their songwriting process, but also kind of about their business savvy. And I think this was decided by Peter Buck, who was the oldest person in the group. Michael Stipe is the youngest, by the way, and I think there's about a four or five year age gap there. But he knew historically that if this band was going to be real, if they were going to have record contracts, one, all the money is in the song publishing. And two, this is the main reason the bands break up is over yeah. arguments like this. So everything is credited to everybody. I think it speaks a lot to them as people, too. I think that a lot of them are just sure. I agree or disagree with their politics, agree or disagree with their interviews, that sort of thing. I've never seen something that made me think that these guys were douchebags. And that's and even speaking to the fact that like you were talking about, they've it's just one band. There hasn't been a shit ton of member changes and stuff like that. And anytime that happens to me, that's a sign that a band is good when you don't see a lot of member changes. They, they seem to have remained friends. And I want to point it out because this seems odd. You don't hear about this too often. But even when Bill Berry wanted to quit, the way it went down was he came to the group and he said, I'm kind of just done with this life. You know, I still love you guys. I love the band, but I don't really want to tour anymore. I'm I'm kind of past it, but I will not leave if it means you will break up the band. Only band that broke up amicably ever in the history of anything. <laughs> that, I was going to mention that. That was my big, honestly, my biggest surprise in researching them this week was that they broke up amicably, amicably and no one hate, hated each other and there was no like rampant drug use that led to yeah. feuds or money. Which maybe and, and, that just I mean, means they're boring. I don't know. <laughs> Possibly. I think sharing in songwriting royalties, which made them tons of money, probably yeah. helped. I was going to say, if every one of you is sitting on like a $25 million war chest at home, you're like, you know what? If the band ends, I think I'd be okay. <laughs> yeah, this is amicable. Yeah. We're very yeah. amicable yeah. people here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I will say that they have ridden this line of if you were to describe this band to me, I was I would throw it back to like ZZ Top is my number one band. Where if you just describe ZZ Top to me, you're like, do you like Texas and hot rods and big belt buckles and cowboy hats? I'm like, fuck no, that sounds terrible. They're like, you like ZZ Top? They're like ZZ Top are fucking amazing. I love ZZ Top. 
You're like, do you love Greenpeace and the Tibetan cause and whiny, obtuse lyrics? And I'll be like, no, this sounds terrible. How about R.E.M.? R.E.M. are actually pretty great. I love R.E.M. (laughs) (laughs) They ride this line of like obviously being pretentious without it being annoying. They seem maybe genuine in their pretentiousness. One of the members of my podcast, Evil, he's exactly how the name sounds. He's a big, he like Van Halen is his favorite band. He is a sleeveless Van Halen shirt wearing guy. He's an awesome guy, but he fucking hates R.E.M. so much. <laughs> and it's kind of... That tracks. The, it, well, that, you can't listen to R.E.M. in your IROC Z. It doesn't exactly. work. You know? like, exactly. But actually, that's a great comparison because that's kind of who they were going up against in the 80s. And not pop necessarily, but in terms of the big rock acts of the day. And there was a real bravado, clearly, to bands like Van Halen and other bands of their ilk. And R.E.M. is kind of anti-bravado. I think we can yeah. agree to that. Absolutely. I think this is a good segue to actually start talking about the specific songs. We played a little clip of one earlier, but now let's start from the top of the record and go through a couple in specific. We're going to play the opening track on R.E.M.'s Green. It is called Pop Song 89. My first memory of this song, the way I was introduced to this, was actually from Beavis and Butthead. And all I remember was that they were pissed because in the video they wouldn't show the boobs, that that they had like the black squares. (laughs) So that was my first introduction to this song. I kind of like this song, though. I think it's a pretty solid pop tune, as the name would suggest. And um, I can definitely relate to anything that mocks kind of the meaningless small talk that we're all forced to engage in on a regular basis. So uh, this is a winner for me. I really dug the juxtaposition of like pop songs are the equivalent of small talk at a party. Yeah, They're just ephemeral. They don't fucking mean anything and they go away and it's just pleasant enough to get you through those three minutes before you move on. It's cheeky. I like it. Yeah. You kind of hit it. That's exactly what I would say. The only other thing that I would add is I don't know if it's on purpose or not, but I felt like this was kind of a juxtaposition to Jim Morrison's "Hello, I Love You." This is, but from more of a more of a timid narrator, more of a nerdy narrator, kind of. I think this was them admitting, just like you said, that hey, looks like we're pop now, and pop sucks. So, well, you know, this is much better. It's much better than "Hello, I Love You." Yeah, yeah. "Hello, I Love You" is on a short list of terrible fucking songs <laughs> yeah. in my I hate mind. That song. They were known for writing very earnest lyrics and very meaningful lyrics. Michael Stipe, you know, is the kind of guy that you don't get a lot of trite, throw-off lyrics from. And so it was a little bit of a breath of fresh air. And I, you know, contextualizing this album to 1989, I will say that a lot of these songs were a breath of fresh air, just generally speaking. And this one was one of them. Yeah, I agree. This song is a success. I think it's probably my favorite song on the album, on Balance. And I think it's interesting to me once I dug into it, right? I I didn't have this context when I was first listening to it and forming some of my opinions, of just how it felt. But I, I think it's a well-constructed song. I like everything we already said. But the fact that they are, they're moving to a major label, 
they're they know how the fans are going to react. They have this small devoted indie fan base who are some of them are going to say that they're selling out and becoming radio friendly, you know, for money. And they seem to be cheekily acknowledging that both in the title of the song <laughs> and even in just the structure of some of these pop songs. So if this is intended to be a hit song on the radio, I think it's very successful in that regard. Rob, I would have put context here. They were not selling out for money. They were selling out for a lot of money. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think that is a very important piece you know, of What's weird about there. REM, too, is that I thought the whole point of the college radio thing was paying your dues. Like, I thought the whole point, you aren't selling out if it's your sixth album that you become popular on. So what, like, give these guys a break. It's not like they said, hey, let's put this music in like an Outback commercial. Yeah, featuring Rihanna. Yeah, it wasn't like that. Well, they didn't do the Sugar Ray thing where they're like, we're a hardcore band and our secret track of like, you know, <laughs> I just want to fly got popular. So now we're all that. They, it's like, it seems like a natural progression of the music over time, right? Yeah. I think selling out is inherently a BS concept, yeah. no matter how you slice it. And maybe maybe it's slowly but surely going away in the modern world. But I will say that there is a lived-in experience that I think we can all relate to with some band or another where a small-scale band feels like your band. You feel ownership of them. You feel connected to them, whether it's real or not. And when they get to a certain level, you might not actively dislike them, but you might kind of, in your head, I've had this experience, go like, yeah, they don't really need me anymore. Yeah. They're, they're, they're big enough now. You know, I can, let it, I can let it go. Talking about Dr. Dog? Oh, yeah, that's good. That's a good one. I remember for me in high school, it was, it was always that band Sublime, where like, I, I was never like a punk punk kid, but I did have, you know, a, a decent stint listening to a lot of that. And I remember before they, they kind of came out with that self-titled, like posthumous release. And then all the kids in high school were like, hey, Sublime. And I was like, damn it, I've been in, listening to these guys <laughs> yeah. for like three or four years. <laughs> yeah. Fuck. Right. I wanted, just because we love talking about hard panning, did you guys notice the hard panned drum fills swirling around your head in this mm. one? channel fill on this one yeah <laughs> just thought it was a little interesting choice but it kind of worked i actually kind of like the drums on this song but yeah anyway straightforward rock and roll song i dug it another weird production choice i wanted to call out was they do some like overdubbed little fuzz bass line but it doesn't come yeah. in until the very end of the song yeah That's the coolest part of the song. I like it too. Maybe that was the uh, the failsafe for switching instruments. They're like, all right, well, you do your thing, but we're going to clean it up a little bit on the back end. <laughs> I think it's going to come up in a couple of other songs, but I think that there are times where you can tell they listened back to the song and were like, it is missing something. It needs something. I have to put something else over this. It's a little too simple. It's a little too consistently the same throughout it. So let's just put a little touch in there. We're going to sprinkle a little overdub or studio magic on there. And I think to great effect on most in most cases. Okay. Let's keep it rolling along and go to the next song on our focus list. It's called Stand. Stand in the place where you live. Wonder why you have it now Stand in the place where you were Now face well Think about the place where you live Wonder why you haven't people If 
DL. Please defend this song. Here's the question. Does <laughs> Do you like things that are good? <laughs> does being self-aware matter? Because I do think much like pop song, this was very much them saying, we need a, we do need a radio friendly song. And this is going to be our radio friendly song. I read that this was essentially a writing exercise by Michael Stipe because he'd been listening to a lot of like the monkeys and like some of those earlier, like really highly put together, like corporate bands. And he, it was a writing exercise of, can I wrote the most inane lyrics possible? Well, see how inane can I get? He also, I think he went through that writing exercise several yes. times. Point out, <laughs> but though. he also he had a few songs that he called his Fruit Loop song, and I once again I'm doing quotations like people can see me, but he had a few that were supposed to mean nothing. Uh, but he also, you know, like Shiny Happy People, which is another song that everybody hates. That was a pop song. A, I like that song because there's this incredible minor change in it that I think is underwell that is underrated. But that song was actually about Tiananmen Square. So like <laughs> who knows what who knows it, no, it's true. What, and then they did it on Sesame Street with shiny happy monsters. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I was going to cite that as a worse version of this exact song, but I, I will admit that Shiny Happy People, of which I heard a Michael Stipe quote, he said, I'm aware of how stupid this is. Yeah. That track is buoyed by the backing vocals of the woman from the B-52s. Who I love. Right? And, and you're right, the verse has a nice kind of minor melody, but that chorus is just trash. Yeah, it is. To me, there is almost nothing redeeming about Stand. Although, I speaking of Tiananmen Square, I did hear that this was about local politics, like think global act local and i heard some breakdowns like that i don't know man it seems pretty stupid the only note i had on this song other than being i i kind of hate the song but i do think it's admittedly catchy and there's a reason it's kind of ubiquitous the little slap thing at the beginning of the song are you talking about the guitar it's, twang it's it's like the brown, oh the bass it sounds, slap. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It, it's like one or two it, notes i right didn't as see the, the air quotes on your slap by the way because that's yeah. <laughs> It's the most like feeble, like I don't want to pick it apart too much, but something about it just seems so weak. <laughs> Even the video, have you seen the music video? Like he's 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 like hopping like a yeah. bunny. Hopping, I, yeah, I, yeah. I think this is very tongue in cheek. I think it is very admitting that they're selling out or whatever you want to call it. Now, but the question is, does that make it good? No, it does not. I st I like the right. song and it's probably just a nostalgia thing, but I will definitely admit, you know, like with my little Twitter thing or whatever about how this is a very easy album to make fun of. This is the prime example of where this is easy to make fun of. Yeah, this is an instant skip for me. And I just <laughs> I alluded to it earlier. But the the key change, let's talk about the key change as a function in a song. So all of a sudden they do two key changes in this song. Why do you use a key change in a song? I think of it as kind of a last-ditch effort songwriting tool, frankly. You don't have actual ideas, more ideas <laughs> to fill out other parts. You don't even have an interesting musical way to get to the key change. You kind of just stop and then start again at a higher key. It's some real Broadway cheese kind of thing, and it happens twice in a three-minute song. Well, I, here's what I'll say about the key change, though, and... I feel like it's inexcusable yeah. and it lands badly. I do feel like the second key change actually feels somewhat 
of a resolution to me. Like I could feel, and especially with those really high harmonies that are happening at the very end. The, the first the key change up. though feels yeah. really, yeah. Like I kind of like that part, but the first key change was just like, as soon as it happened. And I mean, I've heard this song, you know, thousands of times on the radio, but the first one, it was, it, I had the same thought as you Rob of just like, come on, man, you're not, you're not Michael Jackson here. I hate this song. The song's not good. I hated this song more in memory than I did in listening to it, but I'm going to give them credit for a production technique that is very intelligent and it helps with the key changes is that high octave on the piano doing that din 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 over the choruses it gives you this like tonal anchor that you can hang on to yep. so when you change key and it's jumped up to another key that tonal anchor is jumped up and it allows your ear to adjust very easily to the key change It's like a really smart technique to use. And you know the Andrew W.K. song, Party Hard? <laughs> I also, know exactly what It also done. has that dent, 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 just like a piano hammering the root note the entire time. And it just allows everything to gel. I was like, that's a, that's a good touch. And I think that that's one of those things where they listen back to the song and they're like, oh, these key changes are a little weird. How can we make them sound a little bit normal? Let's give a, let's give a, a tonal anchor that we can have your ear latch onto by hitting just the high octave root note again and again and again so that you can easily adjust to these key changes. There's a Queens of the Stone Age song. I think it's called Go With The Flow where there's the piano is just like 16th note. It's just like din, 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 din for like the entire song, but it's really cool. Yeah, right? It can work. I think I actually think it works in this song. It doesn't save the song, but I think it works. Okay. Well, we can agree to disagree somewhat. <laughs> Let's move on to another song. That's if you can call it a song, The Wrong Child. I've watched the children come and go. So can I can I ask you a question? Why did you choose this song as one of the ones to talk about? I actually thought it was the true low point of the album. Okay. All right. I wrote that it was two shitty poems read on top of one another. <laughs> but it's like the same poem being read by two shitty readers at the same time. It's not even different words. <laughs> right. Right. Do I need to listen to the first vocal overdub to do the second one? Nah. You're good. We'll figure it out. I always love to play the game whenever like the focus list gets sent around of like, oh, which one's like the worst one? And the fact that I couldn't decide whether it was this one <laughs> or another one that's on our list, I actually did have moments where I thought, oh, this is like a this is pretty like I feel something. But I also had the feeling of 
and sometimes I use this device to gauge whether a song is good, but it's like, if I brought this song to, to the band that I'm in, like, what would be the reaction if I was like, Hey guys, check this out. And I just feel like if I brought this in, I'd be like summarily dismissed from the band. (laughs) (laughs) Take your mandolin and go. (laughs) I very much disagree in that. I think that this is a more songwriting song as far as lyrics i don't want to touch too much on michael stipe's lyrics because there's another song that we're going to talk about that i want to talk more about it but to me this is kind of a heart-wrenching song about it i don't know what's going on with this kid i don't know if he has some sort of what disability or he has or whatever but this is a song about a kid that is watching these other kids be kids and he can't do that and he's trying to be okay with it to me, it's a, I think it's a beautiful song that's pretty gut-wrenching. I'm outvoted here, but one of us has to like it, right? Here's the thing. I'm, yeah, writing about a disabled kid. I mean, that's obviously a sob story, but that reminds me of writing your college entry essay about your dying grandmother or something. It's just a little... I, I got it. You're going to evoke emotion with this topic. If you could maybe tell me a story about how this affected Michael Stipe's life directly, I might feel slightly better about how maudlin well, it, it comes gay across. Gay kid in Athens, once again. That's a pretty hard fucking young life. So write about that then. I, I, I just, it doesn't feel like, I, I, don't, I don't connect it quite the same way that you're making that Which connection. Is, yeah, I totally get it. I honestly do. I can see it both ways. And I just think it's messy as a structure. Yes. I, I do think the two vocals just don't really make sense. It just feels a little thrown together to me. It feels like they tried an idea that could have been a cool idea, and they should have listened back to it and been like, yeah, we got to cut one of those vocals. And if they had, I would have liked the song a lot more. But the two vocals together don't really work. They're not harmonizing in a coherent fashion. They're not playing off each other where one is existing in the gaps of the other. They're kind of just mashed together. And absent that, I could have liked this song a lot more because I do agree that it is a poignant topic. And they, they can exist in a world of poignancy in a way that is not annoying to me. Um, and not a lot of bands can ride that line for me. My favorite song in this album is actually that song, You Are Everything, which I think is, I would almost say is like maybe the sister song to this one. Maybe just because they both have van- mandolin in them or whatever. But I think that they make a lot better production choices in that song. I agree with that. I agree with that, too. And I want I should say I wanted to include a mandolin song generally, but it's just more fun to poke fun <laughs> sure, a bad sure. song than it is to... The opposite, but partially because I, when they first came on to my, maybe I had heard some of these other songs, they kind of have a recognizable song on almost all of these six albums leading up to this, including this one. So I'm sure I'd heard them, but the first time they really hit my consciousness was with another mandolin-led song on their next album, Out of Time, called Losing My Religion. So to me, this point, and I think this is the first album they used mandolin on, so pointed in that direction, which I always like to think about it in the context of the band's career in that yeah. way. You Are the Everything was the first song they ever used mandolin on, and obviously yeah. Losing My Religion was their, that was what made them, them. Well, and the You Are the Everything is the song that I was like, oh, Counting Crows, I get it now. Okay, <laughs> I can see the musical lineage there. My favorite song on the album, I gotta say, even though I do like some of the other sort of more rock and roll songs, that 
felt to me like a more bold choice in the context of 1989 or 1988 than the other songs did. I do like to hear Michael Stipe's push on the it's okay, like where he's really hitting that high note on the it's okay. I think he's got a he's he's got a whiny voice, but so does what a uh, Gano from uh, from Violent Femmes, <laughs> and I fucking love Violent Femmes, so I don't mind. Yeah, the yeah, voice. yeah. Yeah, the 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 whininess isn't itself a deal breaker, but I think what are we here to assess, right? Not whether REM is an important band. They are definitely an important band. I think that's undisputable, and they belong on a list of bands you should know something about and listen to. But whether or not this specific album really is a must listen that's what we're here to debate i think it's this is an example of how it is experimental which is respectable but also very hit and miss and they paid off on a lot of those experiments including the whiny vocal songs about death on one of their later records automatic for the people which is damn near a masterpiece not the least of which because it includes our friend jonesy doing arrangements oh Oh, john paul jones jpj john paul jones god damn okay that'll be for another (laughs) that'll be for another podcast so on to uh the next song on our list which is called orange crush is he talking about in this song does anybody know what he's talking Isn't about that agent song? orange is that- yeah that's what i read but what the fuck does that have to do with agent orange i don't no idea how these lyrics connect to that you know pretentious i'm talking about the war topic <laughs> <laughs> i've had my fun and now it's time to serve your conscience overseas yeah it's about a kid it's about Maybe. a kid that has to go to vietnam and his dad okay fought in vietnam what is it what does his spine have to do with that <laughs> I like this song, yeah. like 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 his backbone. I like I like this song too. But wait, let's take a quick departure just to talk about the lyrics approach in general. And this is one of the things that made me feel like they were a little pretentious because this also this album represents the first time they ever printed any of the song lyrics on the record itself. They only did it for one song though. And when people, I guess a lot of people through the years would ask them about their lyrics and what they meant. And it's pretty clear that makes them very uncomfortable and that they think you're asking a stupid question when you ask that. When you ask what the song's about? Correct. So I personally think that 95% of any artists, when you ask what their songs are about, they basically turn the question that, well, what do you think it's about? Well, that's what it's about. Like, that's just what artists do. Like, we haven't gotten a straight answer on what most popular songs are about ever. And... I think Michael Stipe is just another one of those, personally. Yeah, okay, fair enough. And I I do agree with the general premise that art is in the eye or the ear of the beholder to interpret, and that actually makes it, you take something away from that person if you over-explain. I can understand that premise. But I guess I just wanted to make a point that his lyric writing is generally not very direct. So yeah. they're they're very open to interpretation. Well, and he's even said that, it, which Grain of Salt, who knows if he's telling the truth, but he's even said that most of his songs are bullshit. Like, much like John Lennon, my lyrics don't mean anything. I was, this word rhymed with this word, and I put him there, the end. But this song, I don't think, this song is very 
you just asked about spines. It's because Agent Orange caused a lot of kids to end up having spina bifida. Like this is, I think this is a very poignant song with, I, so this is when I alluded to an incredible rock song. This is it for me. I think every single instrument is doing the perfect thing. It is the very simple, whatever it is, E minor to G to C, which just plays with your brain. And the lyrics are the lyrics and it's kind of everything. I don't know. It's like everything you two wishes they could have done basically. <laughs> no, you two. Yeah, now we're here. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I, I did think this was a cool song. I, again, this is one of those tunes where like, you know, I've heard it so many times that it's hard to take like an impartial, you know, sort of look at to me, this was, this felt like the most different, of the songs on the album, like this, hmm. it has some pop sensibilities, but it also has, there, there's a different sort of musicality that it has that I, I definitely think it's a, it's a banger. I definitely thought of it as a pair with the very first song, pop song 89. Definitely. I do think it's a very successful hit song and a rock song. So I, I, I dig it, but I also think about this as the stereotypical REM sound, which I know sounds weird based on maybe some of the other things you oh, just true. said about losing my religion and other stuff. But if you just ask me to define the sound of an REM song, this is this is what I'm thinking of approximately. This is where the economical playing comment really rings true. I think that there's nothing virtuistic about anything that they're doing. I think that they are well thought out. There's a point over that breakdown where I'm pretty sure that is just him rubbing his palm on the muted strings to get like kind of like sound that kind of swirls around and like cool little production note. I like that. That's good. Interesting. Yeah, I did get some cool ancillary noise out of the guitar takes, actually. I I noted that on at least one of the other tracks where it sounds like the guitar is cranked real hot and he's just doing like a a real light dead stream, you know, but it's just a cool thing to leave I think on the, the guitar tape. tone I, I on that. this, I mean, this album, but this song specifically had a pretty big influence on a lot of bands afterwards. Did anybody else? Okay. That breakdown at two fifteen, where, you know, Michael Stipe's kind of given his like rant. Mm-hmm. Did anybody else get, you know, in the guns and roses version of knocking on heaven's door <laughs> where like he calls in on the phone and the guy just does like the rant about like, you know, <laughs> yeah. you just better start yeah, sniffing yeah. your rank subjugation, Jack. <laughs> I got, I totally got, I could not unhear that the whole time. It's like, Oh, okay. <laughs> so like, you know, the twins, there we go. Well, he's using the megaphone then into the microphone, yeah, yeah. which I think he might be the progenitor of, but now it has become, very a very common stage technique i feel yeah. right scott wyland owed a lot to him apparently then <laughs> apparently not the uh don't get a serious drug problem part of it but yeah <laughs> <laughs> Okay, speaking of that, let's move on to the last song on our focus list, I Remember California. Bumper cars and Wolverine. 
another song about California. God damn it. <laughs> Unfavorable. At least. This was the other choice for me in my game of which one did Rob pick as the low point. I just I I don't hear like a complete song and like I actually can relate to the subject matter having been born in California although Rob you live there now and so do you Tom so you obviously have much more of a connection to this than I do but like I didn't hear a song I don't I don't know what else to say about it you know what song I heard was the song Low by Cracker <laughs> that's the song that I heard that's funny I heard grunge too but I said shitty Alice in Chains oh it's because oh, of the harmony no. whoa, 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 yeah because the, yeah, the... <laughs> <laughs> there is no shitty Alice in Chains oh, okay. fair enough actually I'm here to I'm actually here to defend the song I actually like the song I don't I don't agree with Alan I liked how it sounded I liked it stood out to me as a different approach it felt pre-grunge like a real a true progenitor of a grungier sound which I felt like in articles, people were saying, oh, um, R.E.M. finally released a grunge album with Monster in, you know, 1996, like way too late, whatever it was. But to me, this actually presages a lot of that music. Now, I will say it doesn't really fit in with the other songs on the album. Yeah. But I like it. I, I did think this when I made that comment earlier about something that I felt like could fit on the Nirvana Unplugged. I, th- this was probably the song I was thinking of. And I have my problems with grunge, too, by the way, even being a child of the 90s. But it, there's just something lurching about it that, <laughs> I, you know, I'm not going to fight anyone who thinks it's a good song. I, it just didn't do it for me. It's a hot take. You don't, you don't like grunge and you don't like this. Song. Oh, no, it's not that I don't like. I, I love grunge. No, no, no. I he like my cumbersome on repeat all the time. I think one of the big reasons why this sounds so different is just so one of the reasons that I really like Green and REM in general is because. What's really easy to do and what most rock bands do in general is base their songs on minor keys. And R.E.M. is a major key band, which is honestly not that many bands do that. And this is, I think it's like one of the two minor key songs on this album. This is actually my least favorite song on the album. Like, I don't, Hmm. I don't think it's that cohesive. And I do agree that like, fuck, this is another Oh, California, it's evil and it's terrible and it's wonderful. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Like we, every single band has their California song. I got to say, he says, I remember Redwood Trees, Bumper Cars and Wolverines. There is literally only one verified living Wolverine in the wild in California and hasn't been seen in person in like 12 fucking years. There's no way he saw a Wolverine. Maybe he meant the actors that play Wolverine. Oh, yeah. Hugh Jackman. He saw Hugh Jackman. I thought he was talking about a college mascot, but I think that's That's in the Midwest, right? Yeah. All right. Well, I think we've gabbed enough here about R.E.M. The only other... Can I just put in a... uh, a one-liner sure. on yeah. the song World Leader Pretender because I love it and it's a big Michael Stipe shout out to like the Leonard Cohens of the world and I love the lyrics to it. And there, that's all I wanted to say on that one. Can you cut that in post, Rob? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to make a whole library and just have DL say completely different opinions <laughs> than what he actually yeah. said. I'm optimizing chat GPT as we speak. <laughs> there we go. Okay, let's call it a podcast by going around the horn and voting. We've talked a lot about REM's green. We've talked about the good. We've talked about the bad. We've talked about REM's career and where green sits in it. But the real question that you've been waiting for audience is, is it a must listen before you die? Tom, the 
only thing that is preventing me from saying yes right now is the fact that this is one of four REM albums on this list. I think it's going to squeak out with a yes for me anyway, because I do feel like it has a whole lot of musical children that led to some very productive lines of art in the 90s. And so I will give it a yes. Did I enjoy listening to it? Yeah. <laughs> wasn't my favorite album. Um, I'm not going to listen to a bunch of these songs again, but I can see how it's important. And so I will give this one a yes, but I'm going to forewarn any REM fans. I'm at least giving two of the other albums a no, just based on spite. <laughs> Alan. This was one of the tougher ones that I've had to decide on recently. I'm going to say no, though. And I, and I know that that may go against some of my criteria as far as like a band that's this important that has this much impact. I think what it comes down to for me is, you know, people talk about this as like their transition into like their later stuff or, or what was a little bit of a springboard. But if that's the case and that's what you're into, like, just listen to that. I just, to me, like I didn't hear. And, and again, I mean, I, in my tweet review, I, I mentioned the success that this has had and the influence but speaking personally, like it just didn't do it for me, and uh, so I'm gonna I'm gonna say no. Split decision, DL. We're gonna throw it to you. So uh, I look at this because I have I've researched the whole 1001 albums and all that, and I look at this as a person that is never going to listen to any music besides these 1001 albums. That's how I look at it. In th- because of that, I would say yes, strictly because of Orange Crush. Because you have to hear Orange Crush before you die. If this is my favorite REM album, if somebody were to ask me if they could only listen to one REM album ever, this wouldn't be it, probably. But because Orange Crush is on here, I would say yes. DL, I'm going to give you props for coming in with a hard opinion as the to the criteria of what should make the list and not. More so than even some of our regulars have a hard opinion of this to the criteria of what should make the list and not. We'd also like to note that you have the correct opinion. I love it. I have the app. I have the opposite that's, opinion of you, but I appreciate that you okay. have a hard one. I have, I, I have no core values. Like I just... <laughs> okay. Well. It's two to one so far, yes. I'm going to say no. It's the issue that they have so many other albums on the list. And while I do agree they're an important band that set a lot of other bands' ships sailing, and you should listen to them and even listen to them throughout their phases, I think four is overkill. And I think this one's kind of just lost in the middle of their career a little bit. I think Automatic for the People is definitely stronger even listening to other REM fans, I think the preceding record document is stronger in most people's minds and murmur their original record. Their first record is also on the list. So anyway, it's a no for me. I didn't really love it. It's not bad. Exactly. It does sound a lot like REM classic, if you will. So is it so out of time document green and murmur are the four that are on it? Yes. Oh no, no, sorry. Automatic for the people, not out of time. Wow. Okay. Well, okay, but, so we have a tie, but as we know, the tie goes to the runner. R.E.M., you're on the list, baby. Green is on the list of 1,001 albums you must hear. Before you die, it squeaked over the line. Congratulations. <laughs> okay, before we close it out, yeah, D.L., thank you so much for Absolutely. joining us. Absolutely, thanks for having me. This was a blast. You guys are awesome. Uh, it was nice to defend R.E.M. a bit. 
I had fun. Go listen to Verse Chorus Verse. You will like this, that podcast. If you listen to this podcast this far, I guarantee you will like that podcast. <laughs> Thank you. Totally agree. Totally agree. Go check that out. Okay, the last thing that remains before we close it out for the day is to get our homework for next week. I'm going to throw it over to Tom. For that. Alrighty, I have the Albinator here. We are going to crank it up and see if it can shimmy out a new record for us. Hopefully it will be something that is slathered in mandolin and traditional Americana angst. We shall see. Yeah. Okay, without any further ado, drum roll please. We will be listening to the album is called Kings of the Wild Frontier by Adam and the Ants. Adam and the Ants. Okay. Yeah. Is that the Goody Two Shoes guy? Don't drink those. No, smokes. that's a, British. That's a throwback. That's a, always room at the top. That's good stuff right there. I've never heard. I've never heard a note of this material. Yeah, <laughs> never for a second. It's new wave. You're gonna love it. It's a good band name. Adam the Ants. Not a bad band name. Let's see. I'm gonna, I'm gonna look up the track listing on this one. Yeah, I don't recognize a single fucking thing on here. Song called Jolly Roger. <laughs> Awesome. What'll be new for all of us then. So join us, dear audience, listen along and hear our hot takes, hot and cold, and all that's in between lukewarm for Adam and the Ants next week on 1001 Album Complaints. Thanks so much for listening. I've been Rob. I've been Tom. I've been Alan. DL, thanks for having me. Boosh. Boosh.